Well, let's continue to worship, shall we, by turning in our Bibles to Psalm 119. And if you need a copy of God's Word, the ushers will get one into your hands. Psalm 119, verse 160. Just one verse that we're going to camp on and uh, use as our springboard, if you will, in our time together. Psalm 119, right about the middle of your Bible, verse 160. Before we continue our study of the Gospel of John that we started at the beginning of December, I'm going to preach several sermons that are foundational to it, foundational to our study of the Gospel of John, and really foundational, these messages, I trust, will be foundational to your life in Christ in general, our life together as a church, followers of Jesus Christ, bound together by his spirit as we are. And I'm going to start in terms of the foundational message with why the Bible can be trusted as God's word. Why the Bible can be trusted as God's word. Because if you don't believe that, it doesn't matter one iota what else I say. It doesn't matter how well you know the book of John. If the Bible isn't God's word, then this is just a feel-good social gathering like a whole bunch of other feel-good social gatherings that go on in our day and age. This is just another empty religion in a long list of empty religions if this book that we hold in our hands is not the word of God. But in fact, it is. And Psalm 119 is a great place to start. And it's a great place to start because one of the many emphases in this psalm is God's word, his written word. Over and over again, the psalmist relates and refers to God's word with words like precepts and commandments and laws and statutes and testimonies to refer to God's written revelation as found in the Bible. Over and over again, multiple different ways, he talks about the Word of God. Like in Psalm 119, verse 11. Speaking to God, he says, I have stored up your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. As I mentioned before, one of the early verses that I learned with my mom by memory. I have stored up your word. Little did I know the implications of that. Stored up your word, the psalmist says as he prays to God and speaks to God. Or how about verse 81? I hope in your word. And verse 105, your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. All references to the Bible. It's God's word. And it's true. Psalm 119 verse 60. Take a look at it yourself. Speaking to God again, the psalmist says, the sum of your word is truth. It's, it almost goes without saying. In fact, it, it does go without saying. If indeed the Bible is God's word, then of course it's true. It, it wouldn't be God's word if it wasn't true. It wouldn't be his perfect revelation from his perfect being if it wasn't true. But it, it seems as though God wants to impress this on us and that we need it impressed on us. And so he says it explicitly. Your word the sum of your word is truth, and every one of your righteous rules endures forever. The entirety of God's word is true, and it will never, ever cease 
to apply, ever. Same for Jesus in the New Testament. Praying for us just before his crucifixion, he said, sanctify them, as in cleanse them, your followers, your people, your believers, cleanse them, grow them, equip them in the truth. Your word is truth. Echoing Psalm 119. The Bible is God's word, and the Bible is true. But how do we know? How do we know Psalm 119 is true as we find it in this book? How do we know John 17 is true as we find it here in the Bible, or any part of the Bible for that matter? Because you know as well as I that any book can claim divine authorship. Any book can say that it's true. But how do we know it's not just another book of well-intentioned mumbo-jumbo? You know what I'm saying? You know, written and put together by overzealous fanatics eager to advance their own cause. How do we know that's not true? I heard as much from a friend one time. It's a poignant time of his life. His sister had just committed suicide. And when their pastor came to visit them and share some scriptures with them, it fell on deaf ears. Because in my friend's words, he just gave us a bunch of biblical mumbo-jumbo, quote-unquote. Biblical mumbo-jumbo. In other words, the pastor shared words from the word that my friend didn't believe a word of, didn't consider trustworthy, didn't think was true. How do we know he's not right? How do we know the Bible is indeed true and trustworthy? It's an important question because when you get right down to it, it's the reason that we believe what we believe. Oh, you may feel it, and you should, but there are people who feel all kinds of things based on falsehoods. But, but, but how do we know that it's true? Because when you get right down to it, it's the foundation of our faith. It's the reason we believe what we believe. Like J.C. Ryle said, a, a pastor in the 1800s, in his book, Holiness, published in 1879, he said, quote, a general faith in the truth of God's written word is the primary foundation of a Christian soldier's character. I love this part. He is what he is, does what he does, thinks as he thinks, acts as he acts, hopes as he hopes, behaves as he behaves for one simple reason. He believes certain propositions revealed and laid down in Holy Scripture. Amen. If the Bible isn't God's word, we got nothing. We just as well eat, drink, and be merry and go home and never come back. True, I mean that. If the Bible is not God's word, we got nothing. At best, we're fools to be pitied and at worst, we're delusional fanatics. Brainwashed from childhood, you know, singing, Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. Come on. So over the next two weeks, I'm going to lay out a number of reasons for why the Bible is indeed God's word. 
reason Psalm 119 is more than just an empty claim. And I hope and I've prayed that along the way, your doubts are addressed and your confidence grows. Your conviction, your conviction based on the truth that indeed the Bible can and should be trusted as God's word. That's my hope. That's my goal. Here's the first reason. It's historically accurate. The Bible is historically accurate. That is, it's true in what it recounts about people, places, and events, which is vitally important because if it's not historically accurate, how in the world can we trust it to be spiritually accurate? If it's not historically accurate about things in the past, how can we trust it to be prophetically accurate about things in the future? I mean, it's a drum that skeptics and critics have been pounding and beating for centuries, centuries, claiming inaccuracies in the Bible and therefore dismissing the whole thing and encouraging you and I to dismiss the whole thing because of their claims of historical inaccuracies in the Bible. Except they've been proven wrong time and time again. Three examples on this. First, were those in the 1800s who said that the conquest of the world power of Babylon by the up-and-coming world power of Persia in the 5th century B.C. was completely fabricated. In the 1800s, critics said that. Completely uh, fabricated, as well as the subsequent release of Israelite captives by the king of Persia, Cyrus the Great. All of which, by the way, was prophesied by Jeremiah, Jeremiah 25, accomplished by Ezra, chapters 1 and chapter 6 of his book in the Bible, and recorded in 2 Chronicles 36. But the critics said, no way, no way. That's just the Bible. It's a fabrication. Didn't happen. There's no evidence. Until it was all confirmed by the, the discovery of none other than the Cyrus Cylinder, named after the king, Cyrus the Great, who did it all in 1879. At least that's when it was found. He did it all centuries before 5th century B.C. Cyrus the Great, and this is his written record, this cylinder his written record from his perspective and his time. Exhibit A in a long, long and growing list, even to this day, growing list of exhibits proving the historical accuracy of the Bible. Second, second example, and more recent, is one that I just ran into this week. I love it when the Lord does something like this. I was listening to a podcast, had no idea that this is going to be a part of the podcast. It happened to be by the, the curator, I guess you would call him, or the leader of the City of David project in Jerusalem. And he talked about the fact that in days past, people actually denied King David's existence. I'd never heard that before. Have you ever heard that? That people denied, actually denied the existence of King David, the one we find so much about in the Bible, the one who wrote so many of the Psalms, as preposterous as that sounds, as recently as 1993, 
Everybody from unbelieving scholars and Muslims to anti-Semites and atheists denied, vehemently denied the existence of King David. All of them. He was a complete figment of somebody's imagination, they said, in order to support a completely fabricated history of the Jews. That's what they said 30 years ago. Why would they say such a thing? Why would people so vehemently and so adamantly deny the existence of someone for whom we see so much about in the Bible? It's this. If King David didn't exist, then the city of David didn't exist in Jerusalem. And if the city of David didn't exist, then the rule and reign of David didn't exist. Follow me. If the city of David, David didn't exist, then the city of David didn't exist. And if the city of David didn't exist, then the rule and reign of David didn't exist. And if the rule and reign of David didn't exist, then the Jews weren't the first people group to establish a nation state in the land. And if they weren't the first people to establish a nation state in the land, then they have no right to be there now. That's why everybody from Muslims to anti-Semites hitched their wagon to the scholars and pinned their hopes on a fictional David. And until recently, they had a case. At least by rejecting the Bible. Because there was no evidence outside of the Bible for King David. Not from his time. None. Zero. Zilch. No evidence outside of this book previous to 1993, for this guy called David. But that all changed when the Tel Dan stela was found in that very year, 1993. A stela is simply a monument. A monument, a stone monument in this case, with an inscription, catch this, from the 9th century B.C. by an Aramean king. David lived in the 10th century B.C. This was a stone monument that was found in 1993 from the 9th century B.C. by an Aramean king who defeated two Jewish kings. Two Jewish kings referred to as, A, the king of Israel. If you and I could read that, you'd see that. King of Israel. And B, the king of the house of David. The house of David. So the northern kingdom, king of Israel, and the king of the house of David, southern kingdom, confirming David's existence and David's rule from an outsider's perspective about 150 years after he lived. Just like the Bible says, lo and behold. I love that. I love that. In a sinful sort of way, I wish I could kind of see the egg on the face of those critics at that time. Unfortunately, you know as well as I do that people who are blinded by false ideologies still don't care. They don't care about the facts. And they continue to perpetuate false narratives of things like colonization and oppression on Israel's part that lead to deep-seated hate and the murder of innocent people like we saw on October 7th. Beliefs matter. This is not just an academic exercise. Beliefs matter, especially those that are contrary 
to the Bible. They matter for now in our day and age on a worldwide scale, and they matter for now on an individual scale for all eternity. Beliefs matter. It's the second example to show that the Bible is indeed historically accurate. Third, the third example is from the life of Christ. You ever heard somebody say that they don't believe in Jesus because he didn't exist? That one wasn't a surprise to me. It's not a surprise to me. I've heard that several times over in my life. I don't believe in Jesus. He was a fictional character. I'm like, dude, do you apply that same kind of thinking to other historical figures? I mean, George Washington, Benjamin Franklin, Alexander the Great, and the list goes on and 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 on. And of course, the answer would be no if they were intellectually honest which oftentimes they're not. But people continue to say it. It's a thing. The Bible doesn't count, they say, because it was written by people with something to gain, which is false in and of itself, but that's for next week. For now, suffice it to say that the Bible isn't the only ancient document that speaks of Jesus. Did you know that? In just the first two centuries, there are two centuries limited to that because they at least would have eyewitness account of Jesus or they would personally know someone who had eyewitness account of Jesus in the first two centuries AD. But in just the first two centuries, there are no less than 10 non-Christian writers who refer to him as well. Some of them even anti-Christian people. People like Josephus, Suetonius, Thallus, Pliny the Younger, Lucian, Celsus, Tacitus, and the authors of the Jewish Talmud all refer to Jesus as a real person and thereby support the historical accuracy of the Bible. I could go on, but we don't have all day and I don't have the voice for it. Three examples in a long list of examples showing the Bible can be trusted as God's word. That's reason number one. Second, and closely related, it's supported by archaeology. It's supported by archaeology. For years, critics said that the account of Abraham going to the land of Canaan had to be fabricated. You know what I'm talking about? The account of Abraham going to the land of Canaan in Genesis 11 and chapter 12. It had to be fabricated, they said, because the word Canaan didn't exist at the time of Abraham. That's what they said. Didn't exist. Making Genesis anachronistic, chronologically inconsistent. You know, reading something that exists now into something that was not earlier. That would be like saying uh, cars were being driven around in the mid-1800s. That's anachronistic. It's chronologically inconsistent. And that's what the critics were saying about the account of Abraham going to Canaan. On top of that, they used to say that the account of Sodom and Gomorrah is completely fabricated. You know, the, the cities that God rained fire down because of their sin of homosexuality, among other things. Completely fabricated. Because there's no archaeological evidence of such cities, they said. Like, where are they? Until archaeologists found the Ebla tablets in northern Syria in 1975. Are we not blessed of all people 
that we live in this day and age where we have so many of these archaeological, you can, you can find lists of these things, dozens and dozens and dozens and dozens of them. We are so blessed of all people. Like previous to 1975, no pastor could have stood up and said this. I'm so thankful to God. And, and before that, they had even less. They found the Ebla tablets in northern Syria, dating, catch this, three to 500 years before Abraham, with references to none other than Canaan, Sodom, and Gomorrah. Lo and behold. Equally important was the discovery of the tablet of Nabopolassar. I can hardly pronounce that one. Nabopolassar does not roll off the tongue. I'm going to call him Nabo. The tablet of Nabo in the early 1900s. Up to that point, critics said there's no archaeological evidence for the fall of Nineveh or the fall of Jerusalem. You want to talk about major cities, like those were two massively major cities. It took a couple of days to cross Nineveh on foot, so large. And the Bible in Nahum and Zephaniah refer to its downfall, 7th century B.C., same is true of Jerusalem, 6th century B.C., recorded in 2 Kings 25, among other places. Didn't happen, critics said. It's all, it's all fake, fake news. Until both events were confirmed by Nabal's tablet. Once again, I could go on and on from cities and places to structures and houses, all verifying and corroborating the biblical record. Now, does that mean that everything in the Bible has been found and, and corroborated? That, that we have archaeological evidence of every single thing that's referred to in the scriptures? No, no. But with the long and growing list of things that have been found, all supporting the Bible, it's no longer intellectually honest to say that the Bible is bogus because of a few outstanding questions or unsubstantiated references. We can trust it. It's true. It's God's word. Third, its prophecies have been fulfilled. It's historically accurate. It's supported by archaeology. And its prophecies have been fulfilled. Dozens and dozens of prophecies. Well over a hundred. By some people's count, several hundred. Not the least of which are the messianic prophecies. You know, the ones about a future deliverer and savior. Around 65 of them. They're around. And that, those, are, those are just the plain ones, the, the, the really clear and explicit ones. About 65 messianic prophecies in the Old Testament, written between 500 and 1500 years before Christ, and all fulfilled by Christ. Prophecies like Isaiah 9 and 11. We Reference these in the recent Christmas season, saying the, the Messiah would be a descendant of David, born to rule. Or Micah 5.2, saying that he would be born in Bethlehem. Or Isaiah 7.14, saying he would be born of a virgin. Or Psalm 22 and Zechariah 12, saying that he would be forsaken by God and pierced. Pierced. It's pretty specific. All fulfilled in Christ. And that doesn't even touch the prophecies that have to do with things other than Jesus. And prophecies like the destruction of Tyre in Ezekiel 26, a city just to the north of Israel, 
and, and several other like it, or, or prophecies about nations that would rise and fall. Entire nations were prophesied to rise or fall, sometimes both, in the Old Testament, and every single one did. Nations like Babylon, Persia, and these aren't just like some backwater places. These are 800-pound gorillas in, in, in that day. It would be like somebody prophesying that the United States was going to rise in 1776 and was going to fall in 2176 or something. Not obscure. Babylon, Persia, Egypt, Philistia, Greece, Rome, and the Seleucid Empire. All prophesied to rise or fall and all recorded in the Bible well before they happened. The Bible is a prophetic document, among other things. It's not just a prophetic document, but it is a prophetic document that has proven true over and over and over again. Which is why the Apostle Peter said in 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 19, that we have something better than even supernatural experiences on which to base our faith. Peter had some supernatural experiences. He was on the Mount of Transfiguration where Jesus, glowing white, heard the voice of God. Moses, Elijah showed up. Supernatural. Like he had things like that on which to base his faith. He says, we have something now even better, even more sure. We have, quote, the prophetic word more fully confirmed. We have the prophetic word more fully confirmed to which you will do well to pay attention. You think? You think? I remember driving down the road. I was in the passenger seat. I'll leave the driver out of it. But I was talking to him uh, about the word of God and, and, and why you don't believe. I had written him a letter in previous years and this was an opportunity to follow up on that. And like, why, why don't you believe it? And and one of the things he said was, I don't, I don't think the Bible is God's word. He, he had grown up and um, being taught biblical things, Christian family. I, I don't believe that the Bible is God's word. And this was one of the things that I pointed to. And like the prophecies that have been made and the prophecies that are filled, fulfilled and the number of them and the absolute impossibility of that. I, like it's so far beyond chance. Maybe somebody can make one prophecy and it, maybe it might by chance come true or maybe even two on a really, really good day. Uh, but, but several hundred, not at all. And he was stumped. He had no words other than to say, that's, that's a good point. It's a prophetic document that we have for, more fully confirmed to which you will do well to pay attention, knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation, someone's own imagination. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit, by the Holy Spirit of God. In other words, God moved in certain men at certain times to write his word and prophesy. And the fulfillment of those prophecies is evidence of it, evidence of God's move, evidence of God's spirit moving them along and carrying them. Reason number three, to trust it. Number four, it's written by eyewitnesses. It's written by eyewitnesses. 
eyewitnesses who were inspired by God to record what they saw and what they heard. Sometimes what they saw and heard physically and sometimes what they saw and heard spiritually. I hope it hasn't left your mind completely, our study of the book of Revelation. That is what the Apostle John saw spiritually in a vision recorded for us under the influence of the Holy Spirit so that we would have something more sure when those things begin to be fulfilled at the end of time and we are like, yes, yes. I knew it was true then and I'm even more convinced of it now. We have already have an abundance of that in the word of God because it was written by eyewitnesses. Whatever it is, whether they saw and heard things spiritually or saw and heard things physically, either way, 2 Timothy 3.16 says, all scripture is breathed out by God, meaning the entire Bible was inspired by God in the hearts and minds of men who wrote on his behalf. It was inspired, breathed out, inspired into the hearts and minds of men who wrote on his behalf. Men, as we saw a minute ago in 2 Peter 1, who were carried along divinely by the Holy Spirit. Not as automatons, you know, writing mindlessly, not having a clue what they were writing or something like that, as if that's really a thing. They were not writing as automatons, but they were writing in their own style, in their own way, to record exactly what God wanted. And that's how God works. It's one of the mysteries of how he works. He does it in every single one of our lives when we come to faith. He works in us uniquely to bring about exactly what he wants through our will. Same thing with the word of God. God has moved in the hearts and minds of men to record exactly what he wants in their own style, in their own personality, in their own way. Recording something true and trustworthy. How do we know? Because much of what they wrote was verifiable. Much of what they wrote was verifiable. In that day, in that time in which they wrote. The Bible was inspired by God through men whose eyewitness accounts were verifiable. You think about this. Let's do a little thought experiment here. If someone wrote a book about your hometown as it was 30 to 40 years ago, Think of your hometown 30 to 40 years ago. Maybe it's the Quad Cities. Maybe it's Albany, Illinois like mine was or something. But if somebody wrote a book about your hometown as it was 30 to 40 years ago, I say 30 to 40 because that's about the sweet spot of when most of the New Testament writers were writing about the life and times of Jesus, followed by the Apostle Paul, and Book of Acts, etc., etc. If they were writing... This thought experiment, your town 30, 40 years ago, and they correctly described your town's politicians, maybe even going so far as to name your mayor. I couldn't check that. I don't remember. Describing your politicians, your town's laws, industry, weather patterns, local slang, roads, geography, churches, hotels, statues, and of all things, the depth of the water in your harbor or marina, if, if they correctly described all of that, wouldn't you think that they were telling the truth about other things? You would. You would. And if they claimed to have visited your town in that year and interviewed several people that you knew, 
Wouldn't you think that they were actually there, that they were eyewitnesses themselves of your town? Of course you would. Because only eyewitnesses can provide that kind of detail. Only eyewitnesses would provide that kind of detail. Otherwise, they would be exposed as frauds. People would be like, that didn't happen. He wasn't the mayor. Water wasn't that deep. I swam in it. We have those kind of details in the Bible all over the pages. Like the self-described glow of Moses' face after being with God on Mount Sinai. Pretty easily verified. Or the graphic descriptions of sin among the people from prophets like Isaiah and Jeremiah. Pretty easily verified. Or the meticulous descriptions of Paul's travels by Luke in the book of Acts. Or the miracles of healing performed by Jesus. Miracles that Jesus even said, hey, go show yourself to this guy or that guy in the temple and so on. For everybody to see. Like fabricated accounts don't include those kind of details. Because they're easily checked and easily verified. Easily debunked. Easily dismissed. Leading to the conclusion that the Bible is true and trustworthy as the word of God that it is. Number five, its message is consistent. Its message is consistent. You might ask, how many total are we going to have of these between this week and next week? I'm not sure. I'll let you know next week. But this is number five. Here's another thought experiment. If I ask you to go out and compile a book written by 44 different people, okay, you got that? 44 different people from three different countries in three different languages. You have to compile this book written by that many people from that many different countries countries in, in each of their respective languages. And those people had to be engaged in a wide variety of walks of life from fishermen, priests, shepherds, and kings to tent makers, tax collectors, scribes, and prophets. If I, if I ask you to compile a book with that many authors from that many places and occupations and, and those people had to have lived over a span of 1,600 years. So if you were starting now, you had to go back to 400 AD to find some of these people. They had to have lived over a span of 1,600 years, and, and they had to agree on all of the ethical, I mean all of the ethical and spiritual and social issues of life without any collusion. And the writings had to connect via a common thread woven throughout all of it of supernatural purpose and prophecy and intervention. If I asked you to compile a book like that, you couldn't do it. If I gave you all of those criteria and gave you a lifetime to do it, you couldn't do it. I mean, you couldn't find two authors with two books that agree and connect on all of those things. The Bible has 66. 66. Because it was written under the influence of God. God wrote a book revealed by the amazing consistency of its message. The amazing unity 
of its thought, connecting front to back and everywhere in between, you know, the things that make me jump up and down from time to time. Intertwined, a Bible written by all these different people over all these different time periods and walks of life and so on, but, but yet intertwined and linked in ways that we will, we will spend eternity seeing and exhausting. All of that despite the obvious differences in authorship, content, style, and perspective. It's a powerful reason for trusting the Bible as God's word. Yea, it's a powerful reason to base your life on it. Its message is consistent. It's consistent. And then last, here in part one, its content is honest. Its content is honest. We can trust the Bible as God's word because it's not sanitized, it's not cleaned up, and it's not embellished like so many of the other writings of that day. I mean, it's just the honest, straightforward, unfiltered account of the truth, which is the last thing in the world that you would expect if it was contrived, if it was made up, if it was just invented out of somebody's mind because they wanted to, I don't know, have a following or something. Like you, you wouldn't find such honesty. You wouldn't find such straightforwardness. Like if you were inventing a new religion, like some people say about Christianity, you would never include embarrassing facts about yourself. Like, hello, uh, that's not in the top 10 of how to win friends and influence people. You know, basically standing up and saying, I'm a schmuck, I, I, I missed it, I missed it. You know, like pointing out that you didn't understand something that was plain and simple right in front of you. Or portraying yourself as uncaring, like when the apostles told the little kids to stay away from Jesus. And a few times they even described themselves as cowardly, deserting him and denying him. You just wouldn't do that if you were inventing a religion. Nor would you portray your leader as being thought of as a drunkard or madman, you know, by the, by the masses. That doesn't make the top ten list either. Let alone portraying your leader as someone who is rejected by his own family. Those aren't good ways to gain a following. And you certainly wouldn't describe God's chosen people of old as caught up in a cycle of sin and punishment and repentance and sin and punishment and repentance. I mean, that doesn't reflect too well on God's choice for a people. But the Bible does all of that. The Bible does all of that and then some. Honestly so. Brutally honest. Uncomfortably honest. Including uncomfortable accounts of bloodshed that are hard on our sensibilities and, and divergent details that are hard to reconcile, not impossible to reconcile, but hard to reconcile, like in the Gospels where Matthew refers to one angel at the tomb and John re refers to two. I mean, anybody making up a religion would have conferred with one another and edited one of their accounts. Like, dude, are you going to change yours or am I going to change mine? Which is it? we got to get one of them, one of them. Not God. Not in the Bible. Its content is honest. And for that, you can trust it with all of your heart, 
soul, mind, and strength as his divinely inspired word. Singing with confidence, Jesus loves me, this I know. This I know. This I know. For the Bible tells me so. Let's pray. Lord, the sum of your word is truth. The sum of your word is truth. We say it, we confess it openly, we proclaim it just like the psalmist. It's true and it's trustworthy, a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. Oh, how thankful we are, God, for it. A light to our path now here on earth and a light to our path for all eternity. Ah, oh, how we praise you, God. And Father, I pray that you will open our eyes to see it more and more. Open the eyes of our heart, God, to see it better and better, clearer and clearer. Increase our confidence and conviction right now in this moment, Lord. Increase our confidence and conviction that it's, that it's from you, that it's true, that it's trustworthy. Trustworthy, worthy of our lives, worthy of our living sacrifice, worthy of our love, worthy of our attention. Oh God, increase our confidence and conviction and give us a greater and greater desire to know it, a greater and greater desire to study it, and a greater, greater inclination to live it out. We pray, Lord. We pray.